Well, we're looking at Leviticus 1, 1 through 17, chapter 1, 1 through 17. And for those of you who um, who don't know, Leviticus is the central book of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the of the Bible, uh, Genesis through De- Deuteronomy, and Leviticus is the the centerpiece of these first five books. Believe it or not, it is the heart of the Pentateuch's theology, as this book will unfold to us the nature of God and the plight of humanity. If you really want to understand the entire story of Scripture and all its depth and all its beauty, uh, understanding Leviticus is foundational. In fact, Leviticus used to be the first book that Jewish children studied in the synagogue. Leviticus sheds light on our understanding of the substance and nature of the Mosaic Covenant, the worship of God, the person and work of Christ. Leviticus is about worship within the tabernacle. Now, before we kind of launch into chapter 1, we, we have to, we have to uh, uh, get an understanding of just the nature of the tabernacle, uh, the inner workings, the dynamics, the, the heart of the tabernacle. And if uh, uh, the, first, you know, um, the first tabernacle that we see in Scripture is found in Genesis 1 and 2. There, there, was the, there in Genesis 1 and 2, was the first tabernacle where God walked with man, where man and God's presence dwelt together. Together In Genesis 1 and 2, a life with God in the house of God was the original goal of the creation of the cosmos. The cosmos was God's house in that sense. And so when Adam fell in sin, when he was kicked out of God's presence, the goal of redemption became the new creation where in the future, once again, man will experience life with God in the house of God with unfettered access. When David says in Psalm 23, verse 6, I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever, uh, David meant uh, the tabernacle in Jerusalem, but he also meant the future when Christ returned to dwell with his people. When David said in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked uh, Psalm 27.4, let me just turn there real quick. Psalm 27.4, uh, David says, One thing I have asked from Yahweh that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. Uh, David was uh, talking about the tabernacle, but he was really talking about the end of salvation history when Christ returns in his kingdom. And, and yet, uh, and, and all of this begs the question, how does sinful fallen man dwell with the holy God in the house of God, in the tabernacle, in the future kingdom, in the new creation? How, how does this, how does this happen? Uh, David asked that question in Psalm 15, 1. Oh Yahweh, who may abide in your tabernacle? who may dwell in your holy mountain. So the book of Leviticus is about this theme. It is about this theme of dwelling with God in the house of God and how this reality is made possible. Um, the, the, the theme of Leviticus is the nation Israel's greatest hope. It's their deepest hope. They want to dwell in Yahweh's house upon his holy mountain. The primary theme, the, the, the main theology of Leviticus and of the Pentateuch as a whole is Yahweh. He is opening, opening a way for, for humanity to dwell in the presence of Yahweh. You see, when, uh, when, when Adam and Eve, when they were expelled from God's presence in Genesis 3, God's people from that point, they, they began, they began trying to return to the garden. They wanted to get back to the garden, but what do we find in those attempts? It seems like in every attempt to return to Eden only pushed them farther eastward, right? They tried to build a tower to Babel to reach God's presence, but this, uh, this attempt alienated them even more from God and each other. And then in Genesis 12, we find God promising Abraham a land of promise, 
a land where God will dwell with his people once more. In Genesis 12 onward, we see this promise unfold. And yet by the time, yet by the time we get to Exodus, God's people are farther away from the land of promise than they had ever been. And even more than that, they're in Egypt in slavery under Pharaoh. So even if they wanted to go back to the land of promise, they couldn't. And so God intervenes. He tells Pharaoh in the book of Exodus to let his people go so that they might what? Worship him. So that they might what? Dwell with him like they first did in the Garden of Eden. And so the creator displays his power through the ten plagues. He sets Israel free. And then from Exodus 15, where is the first place they go to? Mount Sinai. What is Mount Sinai? Um, uh, what is the what is the essence? What is the essence of Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai, listen, is just another Garden of Eden, where in this case, where man in this case Moses dwells with God, he meets with God face to face. Mount Sinai in Exodus, when Moses dwells with God, is just another Garden of Eden experience. It's a reminder of the past. It is a foretaste of the future. And so whenever you come across a mountain in Scripture where God meets with man, that is supposed to remind you of the beginning of Scripture and the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. It's supposed to remind you that of the end of Scripture, the goal of Scripture, the final Garden of Eden when God dwells with humanity just like he did at the beginning in this glorious fullness of unfettered freedom. Eden, in case you didn't know, was on a mountain. How do we know that? Because when Ezekiel was prophesying about the downfall of the king of Tyre, he does, he does so with language and imagery of when Satan fell from God's favor sometime during Genesis 1 and 2. Go to Ezekiel with me. Go to Ezekiel at 28 and look for yourself where it states that Eden, the Garden of Eden, was on a mountain, just a mountain just like Mount Sinai. 28 verse 11, again, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord Yahweh. So he's talking to the king of Tyre. And he's saying the fall of what God will do to the king of Tyre will be just like what happened when Satan fell from the favor of God. When Satan became, became a bad angel, when he, when, when he turned from a good angel to a bad angel. And so this is kind of both the, uh, what will happen to Tyre. And this is also a, 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 re, a rehashing, a retelling of what happened to Satan in Genesis 1-2. Verse 12 the, thus says Lord Yahweh, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in, perfect in beauty. Look at verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. They, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. Look what he says next. You were on the holy mountain of God. Garden of Eden was on a mountain. And so back in Exodus, going back to Exodus, where we last left off, before we turn to, before we turn to Ezekiel, uh, Israel leaves Egypt in Exodus 15. They arrive in Mount Sinai in Exodus 18, and in chapter 18 of Exodus, uh, the emphasis is on the holiness of Mount Sinai. Go to Exodus 19, where Moses is, is called up to go. And the, and, the, and the emphasis in Exodus 19 is the, the holiness of, of Mount Sinai. The holiness of Mount Sinai. Look at verse 16 of chapter 19. It happened on the third day when it was morning, and there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Verse 18, 
Uh, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire and its, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Um, and so uh, Mount Sinai, this emphasis on, 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 on holiness. And the question in Exodus 19 is, the again, the same question David asks in Psalm 15, verse 1. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? Do you see how David, he, he, he refers to the tent, the tabernacle, and then in the very next sentence, he says, he uses the word holy mountain. There's this uh, cinemous uh, equality with the tabernacle and the holy mountains of God in scripture. And the question is answered in no uncertain terms in Exodus 19, that, that Moses alone can ascend the mountain of God. Nobody else in Exodus 19, except for Moses, can, can go up this mountain. If you look at the beginning of chapter 19, you, you see this contrast. Uh, look at the people. Look at where the people are in verse 2, uh, uh, end of verse 2. There, uh, Israel camped in front of the mountain. That's where the people are. Verse 3, now Moses went up to God. He went up the mountain. All the people stay at the base of the mountain, and Moses alone goes up the mountain. And this inability to ascend into, into the God's presence highlights the one who was able to ascend, Moses. Moses' permission to go up the mountain sets up the principle that we're going to see later in Leviticus, and it's this. You need a mediator in order for sinful man to dwell with God. As a mediator between God and Israel, Moses is able to ascend, whereas the people cannot go up the mountain. And he is able to descend. He is able to go down the mountain, whereas God chooses not to. And so the mountain, Mount Sinai, becomes a symbol for approaching God in worship it becomes the stage for this mediation where Moses goes up to represent the people of God and where Moses goes down the mountain in order to re represent God to the people. And so Moses is given the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Then in chapter 25, Moses is now given the blueprint. He's given the, the architectural blueprints regarding the building of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle will now be, listen to me, a portable mountain of God. The tabernacle will be a portable Mount Sinai. And, and this is the ultimate goal of Exodus, right? Uh, that God would dwell with man like he did back in the Garden of Eden. And so in the same way that Moses mediated God's presence to Israel on Mount Sinai, so later in Leviticus will the priest mediate God's presence to Israel in the tabernacle. In the same way God spoke to Israel from Mount Sinai, so will God speak to Israel from the tabernacle. So Moses' encounter at Mount Sinai, this locale described in, in vivid detail, um, that, 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 that locale on the top of the Mount Sinai will be transferred to the tabernacle in Leviticus. The glory of God will journey from the summit of Mount Sinai to the tabernacle, where the tabernacle will now become the architectural mountain of God. The tabernacle represents Eden. It re represents the mountain of God. It represents a creation. The tabernacle is a cosmos in miniature it, is a, it represents creation. It's an architectural mountain of God. It, it, the tabernacle is a cosmos and the holy of holies. It is the, it, where it is a, it, it, the tabernacle is a cosmos where in that cosmos or in that tabernacle, you have the holy of holies, which is the garden of Eden within the world. Um, and, and, uh, it, it's also, where uh, Mount Sinai, where Moses met God. Uh, Eden is not so much a place. Eden is a relationship, right? The heart of every covenant in Scripture is what we see 
uh, written over and over again. What does God say over and over again? I will be your God and you shall be my people, right? That's Eden. That's the mountain of God. That's the tabernacle, right? I will be your people. You shall, uh, I will be your God and you shall be my people. How does that happen though? Leviticus is going to tell us. When Moses received the law in Exodus, within that law contained the instructions for the tabernacle, for the building of tabernacle, for the building of the tabernacle, which showed the way into God's presence. And then Moses came down Mount Sinai, right? And then what happened when he came down? The people were worshiping a golden calf. Israel had apostatized. Then God threatened to destroy Israel before Moses interceded. And and God's wrath was averted. But remember, God tested Moses. And what was the test? He said, fine, Moses, the people, you can go to the promised land. I'll defeat all your enemies, but this is what's not going to happen. I'm not going to come with you. My presence will not come with you. This is the test. Moses, you can have the promised land, but because of the golden calf, I'm staying here. I'm not going to be with you. Um, See, this was a test, and the test was this. Is the promised land the promised land without God's presence? Is the Garden of Eden really Eden if God is not there? Is heaven really heaven without God's presence? That's the test. And Moses knows that it's just not the same when God is not there. And so he pleads with God to be his people. Moses passes the test and God's presence goes with him. And so from chapter 35, if you remember in Exodus until the end of Exodus, Moses and God's people, they they begin to build the tabernacle exactly the way that God had commanded the first time when he gave the instruction in Exodus chapters 25 to 30. And so what you're thinking, right, because you see that statement, they built according to all that God had commanded. And so you're thinking, this is the end of the story. This is happily ever after, right? Um, Exodus 39, 42. When they're done with the tabernacle, this is what Moses writes. Thus, according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did in all their service. This is the end of the story. This is the end of Exodus. This is the end of the Bible. God's going to come down. He's going to dwell with his people. And we're going to go to Eden from Eden. But what we, but what you realize, do you remember when they were building the tabernacle? Do you remember where, where they started, where they ended? They started from the beginning. They built the holy, 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 the holy of holies, then the most holy place. They, they were going from inward to outward. As they're building, they're moving farther and farther away from God. And they're thinking, wait a minute. We're going to dwell with God's presence. So why are we building from the inside to the out? We get a hint of the end of Exodus. So we get to the end of Exodus. The tabernacle has been built. And for the first time, go to, go to, go to Exodus 40. Go to Exodus 40. And look what it says in Exodus 40 after they built it. Look, let's go to verse 33, Exodus 40, 33. He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and he put up the screen for the gateway of the of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Woohoo! Right? Verse 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle, right? Yay! This is this is this is the end, right? This is the end of the story. Let's have a parade. But no. Exodus ends with the crisis. In fact, the end the ending of Exodus shows us by no means that this is the end of the drama. It is only the beginning of the story. Contrary to all the expectations we have gathered in Exodus. Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it 
and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. God descends to dwell with his people, but Moses cannot enter into God's presence. And this would be shocking if you're reading, you're reading Exodus. Why? Because earlier, Moses was allowed to go up the mountain. He was allowed to go up to the top and meet with God and receive the law. He came down, his face is blazing brightly. So you think, okay, Moses, go in. God says at the end of Exodus, uh-uh, he cannot, he cannot come in. He cannot come in anymore. Why? Because God wants to communicate a new message. He wants, a, he wants to ask a new question that the book of Leviticus will answer. The same question David asked in Psalm 24.3. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? So the tabernacle has two theological core meanings. It is first the dwelling of God. It is the house of Yahweh. And secondly, the tabernacle is the way to God's house. This is how we get to God himself. This is how we engage with God in fellowship. To say it another way, the tabernacle is not only God's residence, it's not only the place of his presence, it is the ordained way of approaching the divine presence through the Levitical system which includes the tabernacle, the priesthood, the rituals, the sacrifices, the liturgical calendar. And this twofold meaning of the tabernacle, his house, and it's the way to meet him, is clarified by two primary designations we will see in Leviticus. We will see uh, this structure, this tent, uh, referred to as the tabernacle, and that just means dwelling, and it's also referred to as the tent of meeting. It's the tabernacle and it's the tent of meeting, right? And so uh, Leviticus is going to tell us how we bridge the two. Uh, how can we meet the God who dwells in the tabernacle? How can the tabernacle where God dwells become the tent of meet meeting where sinful man meets with the holy God? How does the, the, the dwelling, the tabernacle, become the tent of me meeting, right? Because it's ironic. Look, back in Exodus 40, uh, 35, it says, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Well, well, what do you do in a tent of meeting, right? Where God dwells. You meet God. You meet God in a tent of meeting. But Moses can't meet God in the tent of meeting. Leviticus answers this dilemma that was presented at the end of Exodus. Mankind has been kicked out of Eden. Now God's second-born son, Israel, is standing outside the cherubim-guarded entry of Eden. If, and so if Moses, the mediator, can't enter, how will it be possible that the dwelling place of God becomes the tent of meeting between God and all Israel. So we have this tabernacle representing creation, filled with the presence of God, filled with the glory of God, but we don't have a new Adam. We don't have an Adam that can get into the, get into the, to, to the garden, to the centerpiece, to the Holy of Holies. So as we, as we study Leviticus, as it progresses, the gap that we saw in Exodus will be will be narrowed. We will, man will get closer and closer to God in Leviticus, and the pinnacle of Leviticus, the high point of Leviticus, is Leviticus chapter sixteen. Now, if you could uh, go to the next the slide, uh, Henry, and I have here here's here's my um this is my outline for you guys. This is my outline. So if you have a phone, we'll just leave. No, you don't. You, you, I'm going to, every Friday, this is going to be up, okay? So it'll kind of guide our steps. And remember a chiasm? Remember a chiasm? Uh, this is like a chiasm, like a sandwich uh, where the, the, the meat is in the middle. The main point is in the middle. Uh, here, it's like a mountain. The, 
the middle place is on the peak. And uh, the, the, as we get to the, 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 the heart of Leviticus, uh, you have uh, chapters that parallel each other as we get to the, to the high point of the, of the book of Leviticus. And so this is kind of rough chiasm. This is how Hebrews may, uh, emphasize things, emphasize truths. And so what you see here is in 1 through 7, you'll see uh, a, a text and description of, of ritual sacrifices, and it'll parallel the end of Levit Leviticus 23 through 25 with ritual feasts. Then 8 through 10, it'll talk about Leviticus. Leviticus will talk about priests. Leviticus 21 through 20, uh, 22, we'll talk about priests, uh, purity, ritual purity, 11 through 15, 18 through 20, moral pu uh, purity. And the high point is chapter 16, right? The high point is chapter 16. This, this, this guy you know, does 16 and 17, but the real high point is 16. So that's a good way to just, uh, as, as you will, when you read Leviticus for yourself, this is a nice, a picture outline to help you uh, orient yourself through all the different kinds of sacrifices. The atonement is what will make uh, possible life in the presence of God. Uh, the day of atonement represents the deepest penetration into the presence of Yahweh. Uh, the day of atonement is the thematic focus of Leviticus. The Day of Atonement is the holiest day of Israel's calendar. It is the day of humanity where humanity can come closest to the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh is opening up a door for humanity to dwell in his divine presence and the essence of that way and the heart of the entire Pentateuch is the Day of Atonement. All the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, and uh, and Deuteronomy, Leviticus 16 is the heart of these first five books of the Bible. Um, uh, and so th this is really this is really important. So that was the introduction. <laughs> so uh, this is why I needed to just kind of preach uh, tonight. Um, so now that we kind of gave that introduction. Uh, let me let me let me let me read Leviticus chapter one for you, and uh, that that'll take up the rest of our time. Leviticus one uh, uh, one through seventeen. Then Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meet, meeting, saying, "Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man from among you brings an offering near to Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd." He shall bring it near, a male without blemish. He shall bring it near to the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before Yahweh. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Then he shall slaughter the young bull before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring near the blood and splash the blood around the altar that is out at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and he shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall bring near a male without blemish, um, and he shall slaughter it on the side of the altar northward before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash his blood around the altar. He shall, he shall then cut it, cut into its pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which, which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall bring all of it near and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. But if his offering to Yahweh is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring near his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons, 
and the priest shall bring it near to the offer, to, to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the offer, altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but he shall not separate it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar of the wood, which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. So from here on in, we can do a little discussion. Um, so if you're listening online right now, uh, you, you don't have to listen after this. You can if you want to. But I just wanted to uh, get that introduction, just uh, get it out there to set up, set it up for for the rest of us to, for the rest of you listening online, to just understand the kind of the basic background and focus of, of, of Leviticus. So, with that said, everybody, look at verse one. It says, um, "Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying." What is what stands out in verse one to you? Look at verse one very carefully, and tissues. What is unusual about verse one? Huh? I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Is that like a follow-on? It was, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, con, yeah, it's, it's a continuum from Exodus, yeah. Okay. Anybody else? What else is kind of unusual in verse 1? And it's kind of, you can kind of catch it. If you guys understand, understood Hebrew, if you were reading the Hebrew, it would really stand out. Is Moses kind of being redundant? And how so? Yeah, he is. Look at verse 1. He said, Yahweh called to Moses. He spoke to him, saying, right? Three different words for speaking, right? It's kind of like saying, uh, yeah, uh, I met, uh, hung out with Peter yesterday, and he was talking to me, and he was, he was saying to me, and he was talking to me. You're like, why do you keep saying he was saying to you, right? So verse 1 is emphasizing something about God talking to Moses. And the emphasis is that this way to God that we will find out in the Leviticus, the way to his presence, like a treasure map. The treasure map to get to God can only come from God. He has to reveal it. He has to reveal it. If he doesn't speak, we cannot find our way to God, right? We can only find God through divine revelation, through, through divine revelation. Without divine revelation, we are hopelessly lost. Where does Yahweh speak to Moses from? From the tent. Where did Yahweh speak to Moses earlier? When was before he spoke to Moses from the tent? Where did he speak to Moses? When was the last time? Where was the last time he spoke to Moses? On top of the mountain, right? So you see the connection. Mountain, tabernacle. The tabernacle is what? An architectural Mount Sinai, right? And so this location from where uh, God speaks to Moses is important. Uh, we uh, we go to verse two, and then it says that he he says to Moses, God does uh, speak to the sons of Israel, uh, and here Moses is told to resume his role as a mediator between God and the people. He'll still be a mediator, not in the same way he was back when he met with God on Mount Sinai and and was and received the law, but he will still serve as this role of mediator in the book of Leviticus. And in verse 2, there is this um, general statement about uh, how, we, how we get to Yahweh. How do we get to Yahweh? If, if you want to get to Yahweh, you need to bring an offering 
And he says at the end of verse 2, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock, as opposed to what? Where else could you get an animal if it wasn't from your herd or your flock? Where else could you get an animal? In the wild, okay? So he's saying, he's saying you can you take an animal from your flock, from your herd, and don't give me an animal from the wild. Why? What's the reason? Because wild game doesn't cost you anything, right? It doesn't cost you anything. And so in verse 2 tells us that the heart of Old Testament worship is sacrifice. And the sacrifice has to be costly. Um, we, don't get, we don't get the cost of, of, of meat, right, in, 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 our, in the West, right? You go to McDonald's, you can get like five cheeseburgers for like $20. Um, and yet, if you saw somebody slaughter a, 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 a cow... You would think, well, that's, that, that costs a little, but not as much as this era, this, this ancient uh, Near East. To slaughter a calf, to slaughter an ox, that's, that's really expensive. That cost a lot of money. Uh, meat in the Old Testament times was a rare luxury, right? How often do you eat meat during the week, right? You eat meat every day, right? Peter eats meat for breakfast, lunch, dinner. And then he has a steak for dessert, right? Not so in the Middle East. You had meat once a month, right? Once a year. Uh, once, once every six months. Uh, and so this kind of offering that God demands is costly. And then from verses 3 through 17, now God uh, describes this is the first offering you need to bring on your way to the presence of God. Do you want to go to God? Then the first offering you must bring, verse 3, is a burnt offering. A burnt offering. And the reason for introducing the burnt offering first is because it was the most common of sacrifices. It, later we'll find out it would be performed every morning, every evening, on holy days. Um... And the burnt offering is presented first. The second reason is because it, it was probably the, it, it represented the entire sacrificial system. It, it, it may have represented the core of the entire Levitical system. And so in chapter one, we get a description and instructions about the burnt offering. In chapter two, you'll get instructions about cereal offerings or grain offerings. In chapter 3, we get in an, um, a description and instructions about peace offerings. And all of the, these first three offerings, you can some people call them ascension offerings. Ascension offerings because these first three offerings were all burned on the altar... And in each chapter, it says, when it was burned, it was, look at the end of verse 17, a soothing aroma to Yahweh, right? It was a soothing, a soothing aroma to Yahweh. Uh, you'll see that in chapter 2, where it goes up, uh, the smoke, and it's, it's, uh, it's uh, 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 verse 12, you, 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 you know, this, the wrong kind of offering is not a soothing aroma. And then it implies that, uh, or look at the end of, of verse two of chapter two, uh, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. Chapter three of verse, let's see, verse, uh, verse five. It is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. So these are all called ascension offerings because the smoke ascends symbolically upward into God's presence and God is satisfied. God is pleased with this kind of offering. And again, uh, 
these first three offerings, not just the, not just the burnt offering of chapter one, but all three, chapter one, two, and three, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, it, it represents the, the entire sacrificial system. That sacrifice pleases God. Sacrifice is acceptable to God. And, um, there are three animals described in, in chapter one that can be offered as a burnt offering. Um, the first animal you find in verses three through nine, it's a bull or a cow. And the next animal, verses 10 through 13, is a sheep or a goat. And then in verses 14 through 17, uh, the offering that you could, uh, you could offer as a burnt offering is, is a bird, either turtle dove or young pigeons. And so what, what, what do you think the reason for the different animals? Why do you think you have the differences there? Yeah, right. So if you were, if you were wealthy, right? Right, Henry would bring the bull offering, right? Justin would bring the, the, the sheep offering. I would, bring the, I would bring the pigeon offering, right? And that's how it would be. So the most expensive, not so expensive, uh, and those for the poorest of the poor would bring the, the bird offering. Um, look at verse three. It says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the uh, herd, he shall bring it near a male without blemish. Why is that so important? Why must it be without blemish? Why must it be without defect? Why does it have to be a, a, a healthy cow, a healthy bull? Why can't you give the bull with like a, a, a leg shorter than the other or a missing horn or uh, some, some disease on the side? Why does it, why does it have to be a, a, um, a, an animal that's just free from all defect? Right. Because as I said earlier, the offering has to be costly. It has to cost you something. Right? An animal with a blemish, you can't sell in the market. Right? If you're selling cattle to, to your customers, the one with the blemish gets, there, there's, no, there's no money for it. Yeah. Not even a clearance sale. Right? And in, in Israel's history, what happened? Israel would give to God the worst kind of animal. It didn't, because it didn't cost them anything, right? No loss. I gotta kill it anyways, so might as well go to the temple and give it to God. And they would what? They would bribe the priest, because the priest would examine the sacrifice, right? And he would just say, hey, here's the 20. You take it. And the priest would be, boop, you're good to go, right? This is how the sacrificial system was perverted as time went on is Israel's history. Go to Leviticus 22. Leviticus 22. And uh, 22 verse 21 must be without blemish. There shall be no defect in it. Verse 22. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or have a running sore or eczema or scabs, you keep that animal. You shall not bring near to Yahweh nor make them an offering by fire on the altar to Yahweh. The blind, the fractured, the maimed, you keep it. You can have it. Don't give it to Yahweh. Because your offering must be, it must cost you something. It must cost you something. And if you were a priest and you were receiving these sacrifices, let's say I was the priest, and uh, let's say, uh, let's say Paul, you know, he uh, wants to bring a, a defective animal to me. And if he did, what? it would be an opportunity to minister to him, right? As a pastor, I could say, Paul, look at this, look at this, this skin rash on the side of this cattle. 
do you really think you can approach God without cost, Paul? Are you really under the delusion that, okay, let's say you try to bribe me. You don't think God can see your heart? Why were you so careless in choosing this animal, right? You could minister to the worshiper. See how what we bring God reveals our heart. When you bring him your second best, when you bring him your leftovers, right? When you give him the dregs of your worship, you don't think God can see it? You think you're fooling God? So every time an Israelite draw, drew near to God through sacrifice, the animal he was presenting was answering the question, who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? What, is, what does Psalm 15 say? What does Psalm 15 say? What is the first, fi- the first answer that David gives after he asks the question, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly. He who walks without defect. Right? This whole animal, it was representing you. It was representing your heart. The best of your heart. The fullness of your heart. It says in verse 3 that he would bring it to the doorway or the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before Yahweh. Verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. That was the process. You would bring the offering, you would put your hand on the, on the, on the cow, on the bull, and the word for the verb for lay means to press down with heavy pressure. And what that signified, what that symbolized, was this declaration that, that you were the animal. And the animal was taking your place in the ritual. So you couldn't go up the holy mountain. You had to go up through the mountain through a blameless substitute. And then the worship worshiper would probably explain why he was bringing the sacrifice. Later on, there might have been a psalm that was sung. The, the priest might have said, yes, God accepts your, uh, your, your sacrifice. And then he says in verse 4, it would make atonement. This is a, a general word to, to, uh, to, to describe reconciliation, acceptance. I don't think you, we want to see sin in this first burnt offering, like a sin offering, or he's taking away your sin. No, it was, it was to describe, this is my heart. God, I'm giving my entire heart to you. And this, and so in the same way, I'm going to burn the entire animal demonstrates, I'm, I'm giving all of my heart to you. Verse five, then he shall slaughter the young bull before Yahweh. The worshiper would cut the throat of the animal. And in that action, it was demonstrating that you were willing to die yourself. And slaughtering the animal for this, this burnt offering represented Absolute self-surrender, self-sacrifice. Nothing, not, you were holding nothing back. And then the priest would splash the blood against the sides of the altar. Verses uh, 6, he then shall skin the burnt offering, cut it into his pieces, and the sons of Aaron would put it on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces. So the worshiper would do something with the offering. The priest would do something. There was kind of a, it was like a team effort. And then in verse 9 it says, And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Yahweh. This was the climax of the burnt offering when you burned it. This was the pinnacle of the offering. All of the animal turns into smoke. All of it. What did it represent? Well, in Genesis 22, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain, this is what he said. Genesis 22, 2. He said, take now your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac, 
go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. When Abraham took his son Isaac to be offered as a sacrifice, what was, what was, this, what, 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 what was that symbolizing? That Abraham was giving his very best to God, all of himself to God. And so the burnt offering and the Levitical sacrifices, it's, it's seen as the most costly of offerings. The most valuable of offerings, right? It's, it's, to, it's to show that when you worship, we, we worship God with, the, with our entire hearts. That's how, you get to the, that's how you get to dwell in God's presence, with your entire heart. Not just part of the animal, you burn all of it. And it, it represented utter consecration. A life yielded entirely to Yahweh, full submission to his will, complete obedience to his law, absolute surrender, total self-dedication. Our, our entire being, even our very lives, should be devoted to God. The burnt offering symbolized our willingness to, to devote our entire existence to the service of God. And that leads me to ask you just one question tonight. Is there anyone here holding back anything from God? Are you holding back anything from God, even a little bit? See, the burnt offering says, no, give it all. Give the entire animal, the entire animal, all of it. He wants. That's how you get into God's presence. Romans 12.1 says, in letter of the gospel, you are to present your bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19, on January 12, 1723, this is what he wrote in his diary. I've been to God this morning and told him that I gave myself wholly to him. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. I told him I take him for my whole portion. This I have done. Right? This is what the burnt offering symbolized. This is the way to Yahweh. All of yourself, absolute surrender. And then in verses 10 through 13, again, you see kind of the role of the priest, the role of an offerer. Verses 14 through 17, um, because the bird is so small, the priest does mo most of the work. But the yucky part, the yucky part, Verse 16, he takes away its crop. The crop was this part of the bird, and all your food was in there. It was the messiest part. And so the worshiper would take the crop with his feathers. He would take that. He would take it to the east part of the, of the tent of meeting or the, or the tabernacle to the place of ashes. He would burn it up, and it would, it would be a way to keep the, the priest ceremonial clean. So there you have it.